Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to the Profiles and Strategy podcast. This is episode 17, the interwar period. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College, we have Dr. Dave Stone, a Russia expert. Dave, welcome. Good to be here. We have Dr. Jesse Tumblin, a uh, expert on the British Empire. Welcome, How's Jesse. How's it going? And last but certainly not least, Dr. John Maurer our uh, longest serving faculty member here in the department. And <laughs> John, welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, so for the interwar period, this is a, a case that actually used to be called Britain Between the Wars and used to focus on and still to some degree does the challenges of empire, uh, the challenges of Britain, given what it's just been through. We've just come through the First World War. We now, uh, as Britain sat down with, with allies and um, wrote, a, wrote a piece that some would say is, is, is very stringent, the piece of Versailles, and, and very, um, um, you know, demanding of a lot of, of, a lot of things, war guilt clause, uh, uh, indemnities, reparations, that type of thing. But very quickly, we see Britain chooses not to do much to enforce this piece because it's also going to maintain an empire. So, um, Jesse, we'll start the conversation with you. You know, what do you think about Britain's strategic choices here, given the fact that it has to maintain an empire, but also it's it's a signator of, of, of this peace treaty? Yeah, you know, I can't overemphasize, I think, how many um, kind of conflicting uh, interests and sort of liabilities that are on the table here. And one of the things that I've tried to kind of emphasize in my lecturing is, um, you know, how much turmoil there actually is in, in the British domestic context. Um, you know, there, there's conflict going on um, through the end of, of the war right there in, in the UK. And so the government, as it's kind of assessing the situation from Versailles into the subsequent years, is is literally in the midst of of a civil war and um you know if, if you want to construe it that way right um and trying to manage or try to forestall the breakup of the of the united kingdom itself and so the the amount of domestic upheaval alone complicates this picture quite a bit you've got all kinds of other tensions you've got the enfranchisement of women um you've got a lot of things that are creating a politically um, uncertain future. You've got the, the changing in the way the House of Lords works. Before the war, that's changed. So the, the upper chamber of the British legislature has changed. People aren't sure how that's going to work out. And so you add to this that the outcome of the war opens up this new kind of colonial theater for Britain in the Middle East that expands its security liabilities for the empire as well. And so there, there's so many kind of moving parts there um, that it, it's it's very difficult to um, you know to kind of see how to bring them into equilibrium, and I think that that that's why this case is such a fruitful one for considering all of the kind of strategic options that were on the table because they also are also multifarious for for Britain in this era. Mm. Multifarious, that's the word of the day. I like that, it's a good deal. John, why don't we go to you next? Well, uh, this case study highlights that the world has been broken by the First World War. And how do you somehow bring about a new world order on the ruins of an old one? Uh, as the previous case study has shown, you have the end of the Ottoman Empire, meaning that the Middle East is now open up. Britain trying to take advantage of that. You have, as our colleague 
uh, Dave Stone has written about and talked about uh, the end of the Tsarist Empire and the establishment of a Soviet totalitarian state, uh, the end of Austria-Hungary, which creates a whole group of new states in Eastern and Central Europe, which can lead to political instability there. And of course, the monarchy, Imperial Germany, has ended and you have a new republic proclaimed, one that has been burdened with signing the Versailles Treaty. And so from the very beginning is harmed in some way. Uh, one big topic that we try to address in our strategy courses is that a country that's been defeated, how do you reconcile uh, people to defeat? You know, when a country and a people have put a big effort into war and have sacrificed a great deal, loss of life, um, to admit defeat is hard. And in Germany's case, Germany fought very hard, had over 2 million fatalities. And now they're being told that they're a loser, that they've lost. Uh, and yet German armies are deep in the countries, other countries. The fighting isn't taking place within Germany. It's taking place in France and Belgium and German armies are in the east, far removed from the German frontiers. How do you reconcile the German people to their defeat? And this is a larger question, not just Germany in the First World War, but in any war, that uh, how do people who have been defeated say, I give up, my will's broken. I want to accommodate myself to some new order of the world in which my role has been diminished somehow. So there's a fundamental, very deep problem here that has to be addressed. And British leaders, American leaders, Woodrow Wilson through the League of Nations, British French leaders are all trying to think about how to rebuild a world that has been broken, to return as our President Harding said, to return to normalcy. How do you have normalcy? If that is a good word, <laughs> how do you have something that is normal after the great bloodletting of the First World War? So we have to keep in mind uh, the great tragedy of the First World War and how hard it is to rebuild a new world order on the top of so much ruin. Mm. Great, great points. Uh, Dave, any thoughts on this one? Just one thing I would add. I mean, I thought Jesse laid out um, the way in which Britain has taken on additional liabilities, um, things that it didn't have to deal with before in the Middle East and now has to deal with. It's responsible um, for keeping Palestine quiet. Um, but Britain's lost assets, too. And so I would just sort of point particularly to um, British India, which looks ahead to one of our other cases. Um, the Indian army um, is a, a workhorse for the British in maintaining their empire, uh, sends million soldiers to fight in World War I. Um, and after World War I, um, India is increasingly plagued by political upheaval. And so India is, stops becoming so much of an asset for maintaining the empire and becomes an active liability. It's, it's a headache for the British to try to manage. And so I think putting all those things together, you, you do have a great deal of sympathy uh, for the British leadership, even up to including Neville Chamberlain, um, for the, the, the number of insoluble problems they're trying to solve. Yeah, problems in Ireland, problems in India, definitely doesn't look good. Jesse, we'll go to you for reaction. Yeah, I just wanted to foot stomp that great point that Dave made. Um, you know, it, the, in, India is, is more politically unstable after the war than it had been. And the Indian army as a military instrument is also compromised by the course of the war partly because of how badly the Mesopotamia campaign goes. So, you know, Mesopotamia is such a debacle, the British government has an inquiry about it. And it's one that that basically discredits the government of India as the, as the entity that's in strategic control of the army during the Mesopotamia campaign. So the Mesopotamia itself is kind of a grand experiment in handing the government of India control mm -hmm. um, and the Indian army control of a, of a major theater of operations and letting them run the show. And, and it, it's politically incendiary, not just within the Indian people and the government of India, but actually also between the government of, of the United Kingdom and the government of India. And so that kind of nexus is compromised too. So it, it, it's kind of all the way down in which that, that kind of, um, you know, system of, of imperial politics has been um, harmed by the great destruction of, of the war in, in the way that John was talking about. Yeah, what is it, an uh, army of 30,000 has surrendered at Al-Quds in Iraq? Yeah, 
it's it's one of the worst you know disasters in British military history. The surrender intact of an army that size. Yeah. Well, that combined with the Gallipoli uh, disaster certainly doesn't. You can see where it loses. You lose trust for your uh, imperial overlord. <laughs> Mismanaging resources. Um, so the 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 British make some interesting choices in in this period of time. They choose to invest in new technologies. Air power being one as a way of kind of garrisoning the empire and overseeing the the new empire and the new acquisitions that um, uh, that come from the uh, you know the Ottoman carcass, shall we say, um, was was air power and 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 the use of it in this capacity the right call or was that should they have invested in more army troops to garrison these uh, these other far flung uh, provinces they acquire. Um, why don't we start this one with you, Jesse? Yeah, it's it's a tough question, in, in, in part because, you know, heavier than air flight is is itself young in the moment that, that we're talking about. And the potential of this technology is um, just sort of unknown. And, and we're in a very like pun very much intended. We're in a very blue sky thinking kind of kind of moment. And, you know, it, it, there's lots of very interesting ideas floating around in the 20s and 30s about what this is capable of. And so you have, you know, T.E. Lawrence has come from Arabia during the First World War. And in the next decade, he's at Oxford and he and Churchill are actually thinking hard about what is possible in terms of of air power in Arabia. And it's funny that you kind of have this dichotomy. You have um, a group of people who think that air power is something that's specifically going to work in the Middle East and not other places. Right. So they're thinking in a specifically colonial kind of frame of mind. It's a good instrument for that setting and less good instrument for others. And and Lawrence is is one of, of these people. You know, he's kind of theorizing what this instrument could do in a situation like Arabia, where you can kind of analogize the the openness of the sea and the openness of the sky with the openness of the desert. You have a big kind of low population density place. And air power will let you project force across distance and kind of think of this battle space, if you will, in the way by analogy with um, these other kind of big open spaces um, in the sea and the sky. And then, you know, what, what's what's interesting is that the kind of people you're going to see in the Second World War who are Britain's, you know, big sort of theorizers of air power, people like Hugh Trenchard um, and Arthur Harris, you know, Trenchard imagined this gigantic arc going from the UK all the way to Singapore in which um, air power assets could be strung together in a giant chain, um, almost like Britain's naval bases were, um, where you could kind of create this kind of axis across the globe that would be the new spine of British world power. And, you know, it's it's hard to fault anyone from for thinking hard about what might be possible through this new technology. But of course, like the 20s and 30s themselves are moments of that kind of theorizing colliding with reality. And, you know, we, we see this in a couple of small wars. Um, you know, we see it in uh, Morocco. Um, we're going to see it again in Spain. Um, and, you know, the reality comes to be, I think, a lot different than what people expect. But with these liabilities that Britain kind of inherits um, in the Middle East, it's a, a key way that people are thinking about trying to bridge that gap, trying to use that air control to police vast distances. Um, and it's hard not to look at that in retrospect and say, this is not an instrument that can accomplish um, you know, what they expect it to. It doesn't have the kind of human interfacing that colonial systems of control uh, require and that Britain has used in the past to kind of create colonial regimes. It doesn't have the kind of human interfacing that that requires in order to work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You, you reminded me of um, that book we used to assign for this case study. What was it called? The um, A Peace to End All Peace. Is that, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. It talks about, you know, the, the problems of not just Sykes-Picot, but then the way you choose to enforce that, um, uh, the, you know, the policing of the territories you've acquired. But, uh, yeah, great points. Uh, John, we'll go to you next. Well, Britain, after the First World War, has taken on these responsibilities in the Middle East through the mandate system. 
and it's expensive to put boots on the ground. <clears throat> it's as simple as that. Uh, in 1920, there's a big uprising in Iraq. Uh, they have to surge in ground forces to put that down. Churchill at that point is the Secretary of State for War and Air. In other words, he's in charge of the Army and the Air Force. And he's looking at the expense of crushing this uprising in Iraq uh, and how expensive the surge is that they have to undertake. And he says, we can't afford this because the amount of money that's going into the surge and putting boots on the ground is so much that it's going to stop us from buying a new generation of capital ships. In other words, there's a trade-off between imperial policing and uh, rebuilding the force for the next generation of competition with great powers. Uh, and so he has to come up with some alternative uh, way. And so the army, by the way, doesn't want to have a lot of boots on the ground because the army has been downsized dramatically and they have other problems in India and Ireland, as you mentioned, John. And uh, so the chief of the Imperial General Staff, Henry Wilson is saying, we don't have enough troops to go around. Uh, uh, should we be taking on these mandates in the Middle East? And this is where Hugh Trenchard comes in and says, I'm an innovator. I can transform things. Uh, I can bomb people, and terrorize them from the air, like drone strikes, and go after select targets. And uh, we can respond not with a lot of divisions, but with what we would call special forces and what they call local levies, uh, uh, local police and military formations. And so with special forces, airstrikes, and local level levies, we can bring down dramatically the cost of policing. Um, Basil Lildell Hart, one of the theorists we study in his book, uh, The British Way of War, there's a whole chapter in there where he says, imperial policing by the air is working. This fits in nicely with uh, British views of how we can keep the empire costs low uh, and still reap the benefits of having access uh, control over these regions. And remember, Britain has shifted to where it is dependent upon imported oil, and it's looking to the Gulf. Uh, by the way, the British Prime Minister at the end of the First World War, David Lloyd George, people were saying, maybe we should get out of, uh, of Iraq. And he says, I'm against a policy of scuttle, he calls it, of running away. Why? Because uh, we don't want to leave, he says, the oil reserves of Mosul uh, in the future to the Americans, to Standard Oil Company. So uh, he sees that Britain being strengthened, as Jesse said, with aerial policing, with the oil of the Middle East, the British Empire won't be weakened. It'll be stronger to compete better into the 20th century. So uh, again, the British want to keep the cost of empire, of administration, of the use of oppression low, but at the same time benefit from uh, uh, the empire as well. So air power is seen as a revolutionary way of trying to help hold down the costs that you don't have to put boots on the ground. Now, uh, again, we look back and say, uh, this isn't likely to be effective in the long run for a variety of reasons. And one of the readings that we have for this week by Charles Townsend highlights some of the downside of this aerial policing. So we try to present in this case where the British leaders are thinking, but also how difficult it would likely be to control the empire this way. Mm. Yeah, great, great points, John. Thank you. Dave, any, uh, any reactions on this? So I, I would never dream of contradicting my colleagues on the British empire because they know it much better than I do. I would just add a comparative note. Certainly the British are facing these dilemmas of what do you build? Um, what systems do you build? How much do you invest in, in research and, and, and uh, development? How much do you build systems right now? And everybody's dealing with that. Um, the technologies that existed in very crude form, like tanks and aircraft at the end of World War I, um, everyone's in a position of projecting. They know they're going to be important. They know the technology is going to be much better the next time around. But how exactly and in what ways and which particular platforms to buy, those are really, really difficult questions. And nobody gets them right. Every single power is struggling with the question of what exactly to do with these new systems. Um, do you build aircraft carriers? Do you build battleships? Or do you build submarines? Um, 
are you going to build tanks? And what kind of tanks? Like slow tanks and heavy tanks or light fast tanks? Um, do you build fighter aircraft? Or do you build heavy bombers? And again, no one really can be sure what the next war is going to look like. They're all just making their best guess uh, in, in difficult circumstances. Okay. John, you have a response to that? Yeah. Uh, just that, uh, remember the First World War, as Jesse said, and Dave has just said, is revolutionary in that we're not very far many years removed from Kitty Hawk. And yet in the First World War, look at the large number of aircraft that are being produced is in the lead. Uh, in the last year of the war, Winston Churchill, who was Minister of Munitions in the British government, he's presiding over the construction of 30,000 aircraft in the last year of the war. You're going from Kitty Hawk to where tens of thousands of aircraft are being manufactured in wartime by a great power. So it's clear to leaders of the future that air power is going to be an important factor and a growing factor, uh, and not only in imperial policing, but also in their competition. And staying ahead in this new realm of air power uh, is one of the great measures of whether you are a leading world power or not. It's just not navies anymore. You're not just in a Mahanian world. You're in a world where you have to be the world's leading air power as well as a naval power. Okay, interesting points. So, Dave, you uh, you mentioned, and it's probably a good segue that um, it isn't just the British that have problems of figuring out what's next and and what are we going to do. Um, seeing as though you're our you're our Russia guy, let's talk about Russia here for a minute. Um, so, end of the First World War, Russia is plunged into revolution. Two revolutions, as a matter of fact. Tsar abdicates. One government comes to power. Quickly gets. Um, overturned by the uh, the October Revolution, the Red the Red Revolution, we'll call it, where Lenin comes to power. And now it's the the Marxist-Leninist dream come true, right? It's, it's Russia is now a communist state and they're figuring out how, um, what that looks like and whatnot. They actually invade Poland in, correct me if I'm wrong, 1920, right? And, um, yeah. So what's what's Russia got going on here now as the as the completely other won't call it a third party spoiler, but completely different animal of what we've seen in the in the past. Uh, great. Question. How much? Time? 40 minutes. Is that how much time? Yeah, that's right. You... <laughs> so to, to, to take these kind of um, the questions that, that we've been discussing so far, let me just pull out a couple elements that I think are, I think, comparatively interesting. Um, so Lenin and the new regime in Russia inherits the old czarist problem of um, managing an imperial periphery. Um, they have less of an imperial periphery. They've lost a big chunk of it, but they still have a lot. Um, Ukraine, obviously, Central Asia, they have to manage those. Um, they have quite ambitious foreign policy aims, um, whereas the British may be in a period of retrenchment, even as they expand their empire, they're feeling nervous. Um, the Soviets are still thinking about world revolution, about exporting revolution. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to rebuild their economy on the one hand and build up military power at the same time. Um, one comparative thing I'd throw out just to think about, um, one of the problems that all the great powers have as they're building new systems is that they're building new systems and working with new technology with old organizations. Um, and so there are entrenched bureaucracies uh, that have particular affinities for their particular um, domain or their particular system. Um, and so new technology is running up against old ways of thinking. Um, you know, so the proverbial cavalryman that can't imagine getting rid of a horse, for example. Um, one of the interesting things that's true of the Soviet Union and of Germany, not like the other powers, is that in a sense, um, catastrophic defeat wipes out a whole lot of old institutions and clears the ground for more, I think, more radical rethinking of what military systems are going to look like. Um, there's a Swedish theorist, Monker Olsen, who talks about how, you know, over time society builds up all these institutions that, that block innovation. And when you have a total revolution and complete collapse, it's not very pleasant to live through, but when you're done with it, you can do anything. And so the old Imperial Russian army is gone. Everybody who comes in, the, the new Soviet army is run by people who are, are essentially amateur soldiers who become soldiers uh, during the course of the World War I and the Civil War, and they can build anything they want. And they're not bound by old loyalties or old ways of thinking. And so I think that creates the possibility for creative thinking. Uh, and then to, just to take that up to today, I mean, it's interesting to think about if we didn't have existing service branch loyalties, what sorts of things might we do differently? 
what ways do old in what ways do today does old thinking prevent innovation? So I just throw that out as a kind of so uh, so bring just it up the present day. Just so I understand what you're saying, Dave, we should invest in commissars. Is that correct? No. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Was that the, <laughs> the Russian innovation of, hey, let's have a... <laughs> so, uh, there's so many ways to go with that, but I, I don't want to monopolize. I want to make sure that my colleagues have a chance to get their say in. John, John, we'll go to you next. Uh, how, how can I follow up on that, John? I mean, you know... Uh, uh, you know, the larger question here is, uh, uh, again, innovation, military innovation, and how you spur that. And military organizations, uh, do you have mavericks that can come to the fore that get traction? Uh, and how much uh, are they hindered uh, in uh, pursuing their ideas? And within military organizations, you also have conservatives, small c conservatives, people who say, no, things are working pretty well and uh, uh, traditional ways of doing things are what really are most effective. And so most armed services have this uh, tension, this pull clash between people who want to innovate and those that are more traditional, shall we say. And so one of the things that this case study does is look at, uh, uh, in our readings, look at innovation, transformation, uh, uh, in this period, because it's a period that is marked by a great deal of transformation and how wars are, are fought. Um, you know, we can all look to some leaders uh, of the past who were quite revolutionary in their views uh, in trying to develop forces of the future um, and increase combat effectiveness. But this debate between those that see a better way of doing things, innovators and more traditional approaches, uh, is, is a clash that, uh, well, John, you're aware of with the Marine Corps today, uh, is one that the services uh, are perennially faced. And one of the things we try to do in the strategy courses is, is make our students aware of uh, uh, these organizational dynamics within the armed services of how you carry out innovation. And also, what are the strategic effects of those innovations? At the end of the day, I've innovated in some way, but does it really fit a mission, a larger strategic goal that I'm trying to achieve uh, uh, for my country? Yeah, great, great points, John. Jesse, any, any uh, reaction to this? Yeah, um, I mean, certainly nothing to, to add to the great points that John and Dave made about kind of innovation and, and adaptation there. I think one of the things that interests me about the... Um, the advent of the Soviet Union to the kind of world of the interwar is what changes when you add a regime that at least uh, is nominally uncooperative with the system as it's existed for at least a hundred years and, and probably more. And, you know, you see this um, diplomatically very quickly in things like the Soviets publishing the, you know, Sykes-Picot deliberations. And, you know, they're intentionally trying to discredit the other great powers by, you know, kind of showing the kind of sausage that's that's made in colonial wrangling of that type. And, you know, an, another example would be the, the great game that Britain plays with Russia for Central Asia that, that goes back a, a, quite a long time it's interesting when you are in India office files, for example, and you note, you know, how quickly uh, the government of India or the Indian army kind of shifts its concern from the fear of like a jihadist, uh, you know, uprising in the area um, or a fear of a Russian invasion to a fear of a Marxist revolution. And the notion that you have these revolutionary ideologies you know, they pivot from having a fundamentally religious outlook on what that would look like to having a a Marxist outlook on what that would look like. So it's interesting how people, you know, have to adopt a dialectical materialist view of conflict in that regard, coming from a very, um, you know, non-materialist view that, you know, we pivot from being concerned about religious fanaticism to being concerned about Marxist revolution. And if you take a step back, it's the same concern. You know, it's the same concern about a kind of revolutionary movement that could overthrow colonial rule in this particular part of the Eurasian landmass. But the mechanism by which it's being carried out has suddenly changed completely. So you can view that one of different ways. One is evidence of, you know, how radical and, you know, how kind of um, how much up, upheaval there is caused by this 
um, new Marxist regime, or another one that says like the, these ideological concerns are all noise and it's really geopolitics that's kind of driving all of this. Mm. Dave, we'll go to you for reaction. Well, and just to, to add to that, um, there is this constant worry about the, the security of the Northwest frontier in India, but there's an ideological threat even within the bounds of the empire that, um, you know, creation of Marxist parties, um, many of the, much of the leadership of Congress, like Nehru, are active admirers of the Soviet Union. And part of that is not actually knowing very much about what's going on inside the Soviet Union. But there is a, a real grasp that, okay, the Soviet Union is against imperialism, uh, or at least imperialism the old style. Um, therefore, they are allies. Uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so uh, there is this way in which the Soviet Union presents a, a, a threat in traditional senses, but also pre presents an internal ideological threat to many of these regimes. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the one threat I think is, Jesse, you mentioned about religious extremism. And, and um, so it's a, it's a connecting, connecting file, I think, would be, would be interesting to make about uh, exporting your ideology. So we see very quickly, as soon as the Russian Civil War ends, which, which we kind of show our hand out because we, you know, the Western powers sent troops to support the white, the white Russians, right? So as soon as that ends, then there's this ideological argument within the Soviet Union about whether to export the revolution and attack these other countries or to make communism work at home. Dave, any any um, thoughts on that and whether how that changes the calculus? Yeah, and so the Soviet Union faces this dilemma. And the question is, do we sort of develop the Soviet Union or do we export revolution? And the answer of every Russian re Soviet regime is yes, we do both. The question becomes one of emphasis. Uh, and so there are different times and places where the emphasis is more on export revolution and hostility to the established order. There are times and places where it's much more about consolidation and normal relations with the outside world, but neither stream ever goes away. Um, but to amplify Jesse's point, um, this is a regime that is at least in theory ideologically dedicated to the illegitimacy of every other government on earth. And even when they establish diplomatic relations, that never really goes away. And so there's always this sense among um, the governments of Europe and, and you know, the United States that local communists are answering to Moscow. And in many cases, they actually are answering to Moscow, but they are a force within which is actively subversive. Um, and there's a number of political crises in the 1920s in Britain that illustrate this point. Um, there is, it's this new force that is qualitatively different than what you had before the First World War and makes um, politics um, different and maybe a little nastier um, in the interwar period than they had than the politics had been prior to the First World War. Again, I don't mean to idealize pre-1914 Europe, but there is this new element um, created by communist parties and the existence of the Soviet Union. So, so I'll follow up on that one, seeing as though we do have this, this other entity, this new, you know, doesn't play by the rules thing. Would you say in terms of one of the contributing factors to why Versailles fails, you know, we talk about war termination, about okay, how to enforce the peace, right, is our question number three. Nobody can enforce the peace of Versailles is one of the reasons because we have this now huge geopolitical entity that doesn't want to play in the League of Nations, regards all other, um, you know, governments as, as illegitimate and is its stated policy is their, is their overthrow. Yeah, so I mean, is the existence of the Soviet Union one of the reasons Versailles fails? Yes, it's one of the dozen reasons Versailles fails, but it is one of them. Uh, and in terms of countries that are not necessarily committed to the Versailles system, Soviet Union, Germany, Italy, <clears throat> Turkey, Japan, um, there's a long list of states that have real reservations about the Versailles system. And really the number of states that are truly committed to maintaining Versailles is one and a half, sort of France and sort of Britain. Um, and, and so uh, this is the, the, the Treaty of Versailles faces so many obstacles. Uh, and again, Soviet Union is one among many. Okay, John, any, uh, any thoughts on that one? Well, when you look at an international system, uh, you have to look and say who has buy-in, uh, who wants to uphold the existing international order. It's a, an old question of labeling countries. Are you a status quo power? someone who wants to uphold the existing order, or are you a revolutionary power or a revisionist power uh, that wants to change the international system in something of a more dramatic way? So in political science and international relations theory, you talk about revisionist powers and status quo powers. 
and as Dave just said, uh, when you look at the countries that want to uphold the existing international order, uh, there are several that want to change it uh, dramatically. Uh, and uh, this accelerates after the Great Depression. And you can't just look at the Versailles order uh, and say it's all about Versailles. You have to understand how the Versailles system is eroded by the Great Depression, where countries that have been players um, that are willing to more or less work within the system, like Imperial Japan in the 1920s, all of a sudden turns against that international order. And even Germany uh, uh, buys into the Versailles order by the late 1920s, the whole question of what the Germans call fulfillment. Will they fulfill their obligations under Versailles? Um, they uh, uh, join the League of Nations after the Locarno Pact. So the, the Versailles system has a way of, of perhaps surviving and going on, but the Great Depression uh, uh, deals a knockout blow to it because you see a radicalization of politics that takes place. So it's not just the Soviet Union, as Dave said, there's a lot of dissatisfaction. The question is how much dissatisfaction is there that it's going to lead to war, where you want to overturn the system by fighting. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and Jesse, I want to, I want to take the question over to you, but I want to take it over in the context of, you know, is, is, is this changing strategic calculus um, one of the things that kind of leads us into this Washington Naval Treaty that then has a whole host of other second and third order effects? Yeah. And I, I to kind of bridge the questions um, into Washington, I think the, the big kind of missing piece of the story so far is the United States. Um, and and trying to understand the role that the that the that the rising United States plays in all of this, um, both the sense in which you know Wilsonianism is itself a kind of revision of an older international order that has a profoundly destabilizing effect on what had been um, before, including for you know its nominal allies like Britain, um, because of the the kind of ideological uh, frisson it creates for something like colonialism. Um, with with the notion of self determination, so you have you have a twofold problem here. You have the uh, you know have the, the United States coming in with these revisionist ideas, but then once you have a new system in place, you have a kind of fail failure to commit to the upholding of that system, which is the kind of thing that you're going to see um, you know debated endlessly about the depression as it as it comes. You know what? Why wasn't there? A kind of backstop there, a new hegemon to enforce the rules of that new system. And you know, to to your direct question about Washington, you know, as soon as you get into the the negotiations that lead up to Washington, you can start to see a little bit of what the the real new order looks like. And it's not all of this stuff in in Europe. It's a kind of three part um, conversation between Britain. The United States and and Japan, and and you can see the new order emerging in in what that looks like, and it's an extraordinary climb down um, for Britain to both accept parity with the United States um, and to uh, and to kind of accept Japan as a kind of peer there. Though of course we should note here that that Britain has been ahead of that curve for a long time because of the Anglo-Japanese alliance. And it's really in that moment of Washington that you see Britain make a big choice. And, you know, it's a choice that I'm going to talk about in, in my lecture in the interwar case, that it's, you know, you've, you've hitched your wagon to Japan for two decades as a way of writing off, or if not writing off, then um, trying to solve the problem of the Pacific. And after Washington, you've unhitched that wagon. And you've said, it's the United States that we're now um, kind of beholden to for making our global security footprint work. And there's a longer story of that in North America, going back a hundred years to Canada, to Britain realizing that there's no way it could defend Canada, for example, from the United States. And therefore it was going to have to step away from that and be friendly with the United States, no matter what, by the time we get to this moment, it's made that calculation for the Pacific too. And you can see that right in that Washington moment. You can see what that new order looks like. Okay. John, we'll go to you for reaction. Um, it's 100 years since the Washington Conference. It began last year uh, in November 11th, 1921. A couple things are very important. Uh, one, today, how it's almost forgotten. <laughs> 
I, I wrote a piece on it, and it's one of the few pieces that came out for the anniversary 100 years ago in Washington. And uh, one thing that's really important to emphasize about Washington is that it's in Washington uh, and that the United States is taking the lead in this. You know, we tend to think of the United States because we didn't uh, join the League of Nations after a bitter treaty, treaty fight that somehow we were withdrawn from the international system. Well, we were to some degree, but at the same time, we're taking the lead in calling this conference. And the conference is about naval arms control, uh, something uh, that the United States, again, comes up with the proposal and springs it on the other powers in a public forum uh, by Secretary of State Hughes. A remarkable example of public diplomacy. Uh, and it's... Uh, because it's made public, the whole proposal, the British and the Japanese are, are in a bind. They can't say no to it because their publics want to have limitation of arms. Uh, but the Washington system is not just about naval arms control. It's also about trying to settle differences between Japan and China in the Far East. Uh, and so what you see is that China is represented at the Washington conference and a whole security framework is being created for Asia there. Now, again, that comes crashing down in the 1930s. But in the 1920s, there's an opportunity here to bring Japan in as a responsible stakeholder, as we might say, of settling differences with China and also regulating the arms competition between these three big naval powers. And so the architecture is being put in place for a stable international order, and Washington is taking the lead in this. Now, in the 1930s, this comes crashing down and the United States is not willing to enforce the Washington system. Okay. They, uh, the United States has become too isolationist at that point. So again, one of the themes of this case study is not just about Britain in the world, but also about the United States playing a role uh, that uh, a smaller role uh, than we ought to if we wanna see international stability in the system. Okay. Dave, we'll go to you for your reaction. Yeah, so uh, Jesse stole one of my points. So good on you, Jesse. I'll actually now steal one of John's points, uh, John Maurer, who's made this very eloquently. Um, and just to point out, uh, again, the Thucydides trap is part of public dialogue all the time. Um, but one of the things that's clear about this period and extending back before World War I, as Jesse was just saying, is that there's a Thucydides trap that was never sprung, which is Britain's accommodation of a rising United States. That, that never comes to war. And as Jesse said, the British think about it, do they wanna fight this? And they decide it's not worth fighting. They, they would prefer to live with it. Um, and it's worth keeping that in mind that Thucydides traps don't always lead to war. And again, John Mauer has been very eloquent on this. He didn't mention it, so I'll mention it on his behalf. Yeah. And the United States, we have an, an O plan, right? The colored O plans, O plan black is the uh, <laughs> fighting Great Britain. So we're thinking about it too. Um, so plan, by the way, John was updated through the interwar period. And if you look at the, our archives here at the Naval War College, what you see is that every year a war against a naval war against Britain was gamed out, mm. a, a war playing uh, uh, red, and it would culminate in a big battle off the coast of Newfoundland, the Battle of Sable Island. Uh, so it's fun to look at, yeah. interesting to look at. An imaginary war that never happened, as Dave said, it, uh, you know, it didn't happen, but it could have happened. Uh, in theory, uh, unlikely to have happened. But so, so John, you mentioned um, the Great Depression, and so there's this changing strategic calculus that happened as a result of the Great Depression, and it it it's understanding how bad the Great Depression got kind of lets us know why some of these fascist regimes rise to power in Europe in places like Spain, Italy, and in, in Germany as a way of kind of trying to get out of the, this, this depression that everybody's in. Um, is, is Great Britain, you know, they, they have, they've started to really not enforce the peace of Versailles. Really, it started in the, in the 20s, right? They kind of started to, to back off on enforcement of this. But now in the 30s, the calculus is completely different because, because of the world economy. Um, Britain, by we'll call it 1935, 36, is now just choosing to appease 
all of the actions that um, the Germans do and Hitler does and, you know, remilitarization of the Rhineland and, and, and um, you know, building an air force, rebuilding a navy, uh, an army greater than 100,000, all the, all the stipulations of Versailles. Does Britain choose this policy of appeasement, but are there any, and, and, and that is much derided in, in, by, in, in history by historians and, you know, um, that becomes a, a the word, the, the the slogan that gets us into places like Korea and Vietnam, right? No, no policy of appeasement here. But does Britain have any other realistic choices at at this period of time? We'll call it say 1936-ish, around that period of time. John, we'll we'll start the conversation with you. Well, uh, appeasement, as you say, John, is a dirty word nowadays because of what happened. Uh, to use a cognate or synonym for us today is the word accommodation. Uh, so if you want to think about what does appeasement mean to us, it's accommodation. And uh, as you said, uh, the British leaders have already thought, how do we reintegrate Germany back into the, uh, into the international system to where they become that, again, our phrase is responsible stakeholder. Well, uh, you appease or accommodate Germany as much as you can. And so British leaders from David Lloyd George down to Neville Chamberlain uh, there's a long line there. It's uh, across parties are trying to somehow accommodate Germany uh, to uh, bring them back in to be that responsible stakeholder. Are there alternatives? Yes, there's alternatives to appeasement. Uh, Britain could have sought to contain Germany better to try to reach out to France in particular. Uh, we have a reading in 19, on 1938 by Wick Murray about the Munich uh, crisis. Uh, Britain could have stood by France and Czechoslovakia at that point. War probably would have broken out in 38. And uh, uh, the argument is made that better to fight in 38 than 39. But they decide not to do that. And the context is so important here. They've been through the First World War. Britain suffered over 700,000 fatalities, over a million seriously injured from the war. The memories of the war are great. And so you don't want to fight another world war. You'll do anything to avoid it. And so Neville Chamberlain is very much motivated of trying to avoid war. Uh, and he hopes that by meeting some of Hitler's demands that you will accommodate Hitler and he will be less aggressive and less willing to overthrow the international status quo. Plus, British leaders look at uh, what does it take to fight another world war? Uh, if you're going to fight Germany, you're going to need the United States on your side. And the United States is isolationist uh, and getting more so through the 30s. So uh, here for Britain to have a realistic alternative uh, to appeasement, and this is what Neville Chamberlain will say, Americans are cads. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not willing to step up to the plate. They're not likely to support us. So one of the big differences between Churchill and Chamberlain is that Churchill's willing to take a harder line against Germany, in part because he believes eventually the United States will see that they're going to have to support Britain against uh, a hostile Germany. Neville Chamberlain isn't so sure. He has doubts about the United States. And I think a very important big takeaway from this case study of great relevance is the international system, in the international system, how much stability is depends to a remarkable degree upon whether the United States is going to play a larger role in the world or not, and what people think about our willingness to take up a larger security role in the world. So this case study resonates in a lot of ways with uh, uh, our own times. Mm -hmm. Okay, great points. Jesse, we'll go to you next. Yeah, um, just to add to, the, to those great points that, that John was making there, you know, when, when we think about this kind of from the, the, the British perspective and, and how they organize their strategic interests, you know, things in the interwar have gone um, in a particular direction in the empire. A couple of, of, of big kind of things have either changed or seem to be changing in motion. You know, one of, the, one of these is in 1931, there's the Statute of Westminster that's, that's um, promulgated, which basically... Um, it removes parliamentary sovereignty from uh, within the empire from that from the UK parliament, and, and and this is a really big step because all the way before the First World War, Britain had already been discussing with the big dominions, so um, South Africa, Australia, Canada, um, New Zealand, about whether 
the decision for war is something that will be taken on an empire level um, across the board instantaneously, which traditionally had always been the case. If the sovereign is at war, the empire is at war, and the sovereign usually is located, you know, in England. And so um, it's a foregone conclusion. And even though they pay lip service to this in the run up to the First World War, it still happens the way it normally does. You know, th those early mornings in August 1914, telegrams go out and, and everyone is instantaneously at war. By the time we get to the late 1930s, much of that architecture has changed, right? So one of the things, again, you know, previewing something I'll talk about in my lecture, in 1922 at the Chinook crisis, it, it, it is revealed dramatically that the Dominions might not cooperate in, in a war. And after 1931 with the Statute of Westminster, it's made legally um, kind of a reality that parliamentary sovereignty, the way it used to exist, doesn't exist anymore. And that there's a parity between these governments um, under the crown in the empire. And so when Britain is thinking about what are the ramifications of going to war as an empire now, it has to think about that in a mechanically different way, even if the political concerns are remain pretty similar, mechanically it's quite different. India too, right? That that military instrument that that milit that India represents, that you know, if 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 Britain has land power reserves, th they exist in the form of the Indian army. And you know, by the time we get to the late 1930s, we've all already come through again a couple of attempted big reform bills in India that are really just trying to slow play what, what looks increasingly like a when and not if question for Indian independence. And so there are big questions across the board about if Britain goes to war, what does that look like now? Um, you know, how, how can you bring the, the instruments of or the, the resources of the empire to bear? Uh, that, that's looking more tenuous um, now than it has been in, in, in a long time. And so that that has to be part of the calculus as well. Okay, um, Dave, any any thoughts on this one? Uh, you're, let me unmute you, Dave. Thank you. I'd like to take a slightly different slant on this um, and look at the Soviet Union in terms of uh, and the era of appeasement. Um, so John Maurer is talking about Neville Chamberlain's um, reluctance to confront Germany and, and thinking and the way Winston Churchill thought about the U.S. The, the party that's often left out of the discussions of what happens in 1938 is the Soviet Union. And just a couple points to make. The Soviet Union has a defensive alliance with France, and it has a defensive alliance with Czechoslovakia. And in the Munich crisis, the Soviet Union mobilizes its forces on the Western border. Like every piece of evidence points to the Soviets are preparing to fight to defend Czechoslovakia. Now, you could say, ah, but in his heart of hearts, Stalin wouldn't have done that. He was going to sell him out at the end. But again, every piece of evidence says the Soviets are going to fight. And who isn't represented at Munich? Soviet Union. They're not asked to be there. Uh, and so that, I think, is the real failure of imagination of Neville Chamberlain. I mean, failure of imagination. He, he imagined that Hitler and Stalin were equally dangerous, and perhaps even Stalin more dangerous. Uh, and so he was absolutely unwilling to think about the Soviet Union as a counterweight to Nazism. And I think that was a fundamental mistake and it crippled the possibility of actually constraining Hitler in 1938. And you're left with fighting under much worse circumstances in 1939. And so that angle, and then in particular, the way the British establishment is, I wanna be careful how I phrase this, finds Nazism somehow slightly more acceptable than communism um cripples i think effective thinking about what to do in the run-up to war interesting so so i want to i want to pull on that thread but i want to bridge it to the contemporary realm here so one way of looking at this and as, as some have kind of commented on it um appeasement um is feeding a bear that just gets more hungry right so so hitler's appeased in the rhineland he's appeased in the sudetenland he's appeased in czechoslovakia and, and he just keeps demanding more and more and he gets it and, you know, what's the old saying, if he had died in 1938, he would have gone down in history as the greatest German chancellor since Bismarck, right? Because he's, he's you know, uh, undoing all of the, the, the peace of Versailles. And because nobody fights him, he, he keeps trying to bite off more and more and more. Um, there's a contemporary parallel that it's at it, least has been made by a few commentators to Vladimir Putin 
In 2014, he annexes the Ukraine, just makes a statement that, hey, we're annexing the Ukraine, and the silence was deafening from U.S. government policy. And, you know, could you make this contemporary parallel and say, well, this was appeasement, and now, because we're, because of that, now we're in, and, and, and then he starts a, a war in the Donbass, which with his little green men, right? Nobody really does anything about that. And now all of a sudden we have this, as of, you know, this year, this full-on invasion of the Ukraine. So, so Dave, we're, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to you, start this one off. As our- so I, I certainly recognize the parallels. Um, what I would say is that when the West sells out Czechoslovakia, the Czechoslovaks had a serious army and a serious munitions industry and geography on their side and were perfectly capable of putting up a fight. What I would say about Ukraine is that Ukraine of 2014 and Ukraine of 2022 are very different. Um, in 2014, it was fairly clear the Ukrainian military was not capable of standing up to a, a full-scale Russian assault. They could fight effectively on a limited degree and got better with time. Um, and so I would caution against taking Ukrainian military performance in 2022, which has been extraordinarily impressive, hmm. and assuming that the same thing could have happened in 2014. Um, so I think they're different situations, though, again, I do recognize there's a, a certain amount of appeasement. Like, when do you step up and decide that a, a piece of aggression is not acceptable? So parallels, but not perfect is the way I would put it. OK, John, any thoughts? Uh, just to uh, follow up on what Dave said, I think sometimes these parallels break down. Um, the Czechs, while they're being sold out at Munich, there's no reason why the Czechs couldn't have said, we're going to stay and fight anyway and go down. One of the things that makes 1939 different from 1938 is the Poles won't give in to any pressure to accommodate. Uh, they have seen what has happened at Munich uh, and that Czechoslovakia was, as Churchill said, fed course by course to the Nazi dictator. Um, so they decide to fight. And of course, Poland gets crushed in a month, but nonetheless, it triggers the Great War. Um, Czechoslovakia could have fought in 38, and I think, uh, as Dave said, uh, would have put up one heck of a fight and would have uh, forced almost France, Britain, and potentially the Soviet Union to, uh, to come in. So again, whether a country, uh, uh, whether these larger wars come about depend in part upon uh, the players and whether they will stand and fight. Uh, Ukraine decided to stand and fight uh, uh, in uh, uh, 2022. And so their willingness to fight, uh, that President Zelensky doesn't flee the country, uh, that uh, the Ukrainian willingness to fight uh, is what enables this war to become protracted there. Uh, again, the Czechs could have fought in 38 like the Poles did or like the Ukrainians did in 2022, and as a consequence, then bring in the greater powers to support them to one degree or, or another. So all these parallels break down in some way, but I, I, again, we shouldn't think that accommodation is always a flawed strategy, by the way, just to shift gears somewhat. Uh, accommodating Hitler is bad. We know that. Uh, we have the history to show that. But again, in the context of the 30s, it is to make every effort possible to avoid another great power war, because mm -hmm. the thinking is, quite rightly, that do, does anybody benefit from a great power war? Now, it might have to be fought. But at the same time, trying to avoid that is what is, is key. And uh, so accommodating a rising power, uh, a, a country that is perhaps dissatisfied, might be the best strategy to pursue. It depends upon the nature of that regime and what their aims are, whether you take a, a, a position of containment or whether you decide to appease and accommodate. So it's important to recognize differences in historical periods and differences across countries uh, and not try to apply uh, uh, some simple rule like appeasement never works and hence not ever try to negotiate with a potential challenger. Mm. No, great, great points. Jesse, any, uh, any final thoughts here? Yeah, no, just to uh, follow on from a couple of the great points that, that Dave and John made, you know, I, I think, um, you know, one interesting variable through through a lot of these cases is the the importance of a kind of 
um, eloquent leader that can crystallize the situation. And I think, you know, we've, we've definitely seen that in, in Zelensky um, in the current situation. And I think, you know, it's interesting to try to transpose him um, onto the moment, you know, in the interwar that we're thinking about. And, you know, someone like Joseph Pilchutsky in, in, in interwar Poland, um, apologies for that pronunciation butchery for any of our Polish speaking listeners, but, um, you know, he is very eloquent and he is very, um, you know, outspoken and vociferous about the terms of the, of the sort of post-war order. And, and, you know, he's actually, you know, very fatalistic at times about expecting help from the Western European powers in the event of aggression from either direction, really. And it's a kind of, you know, he, he, he rather tragically forecasts that Poland will be betrayed. And, you know, I think it, it makes for interesting points of both comparison and contrast with someone like Zelensky, who's who's also making these kind of, you know, passionate pronouncements about what is going to occur and kind of trying to see Putin for who he is, um, but who also expects help um, and and gets it and 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 the question then to ask is you know what what is the level of commitment that the the, the rest of of Europe um, and and other great powers will attach to defending that um, that position and not appeasing an, an aggressive um, leader. No, great stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, gentlemen, that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for an entertaining and engaging and very informative discussion. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you, John. John. Thank you.